good to see everyone here this morning. We're glad that you've come out to worship us. And as we begin what kind of we would refer to as the, this is Holy Week, uh, the idea of Jesus' last week on earth. If we go back in our Bibles, the this today, Sunday, was what we call Palm Sunday, which is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem where the palm tree or the palm leaves were laid down and they shouted, you know, glory to Hosanna in the highest and, and Jesus was cheered as he came into Jerusalem. Uh, we're going to fast forward to Friday of that week this morning and we're going to talk about the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. <laughs> Next week, Easter Sunday, we're going to talk about the burial of Jesus and I'm going to extend it one more week, Lord willing. The week after Easter, we're going to talk about the resurrection because the gospel message, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, is the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. So we're going to look at all three of those. But before I do, before we get there, uh, a lot of times a lot of people are interested in people's last words. What's the last words they said? What, especially if someone famous dies, what's the last thing? that they said, and here are some last words that have been recorded throughout history. Johnny Ace, who was a rhythm and blues singer, died in 1954 while he was playing with a pistol during a break in his concert. His last words were, I'll show you this thing doesn't shoot. Thomas Moran was a pickpocket, known by the nickname Butterfingers. He reportedly stole as many as 50,000 wallets in his career. He died in Miami in 1971, and his last words were, I'll never forget that smart-alecky reporter who named me Butterfingers. To me, it's not funny. Murderer James W. Rogers was put in front of a firing squad in Utah and asked, if he had a last request, he said, yes, I'd like a bulletproof vest, please. <laughs> Actor Michael Landon, most of you know him through Little House on the Prairie and Highway to Heaven, Bonanza. He died of cancer in 1991, and with his family gathered around him, his son said, Dad, it's time to move on, and Landon said, you're right, it's time. I love you all. And then finally, basketball greats, Pistol Pete Maravich collapsed during a pickup game of basketball, his last words were, I feel great. As Christians, perhaps the greatest last words that we could examine are the last words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So on this Palm Sunday, with Easter approaching, this morning we're going to look at the last, not just the last words of Christ, but the phrases and the context over which those last words were presented and uh, way Jesus said those. And I'm tempted, one of these days, I've been threatening for years, it's been on my heart for years to do a sermon series on these seven last words of Christ. We could. Uh, there's been musicals made about them. There's been chorus oratorios written about the seven last words of Christ. But we're going to do a 30,000-foot flyover this morning of the last words of Christ, and I'm going to do the best I can to put those in the order that Jesus Christ would have said them on the cross. Obviously, we weren't there, and we don't have a, a record of, of a video of that, but from what we can piece together, this is the best uh, that, that theologians who study such things 
the order in which they were said. First of all, if you turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And in Luke 23, we'll begin reading at verse 33. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. This would have been at the very beginning of Jesus' crucifixion. They would have just placed the spikes into his wrists, nailed them to the crossbeam, and they would hook the crossbeam into the pole that stayed there permanently. And as this crucifixion begins, as this awful execution begins, Jesus says of all things, Father, forgive them. This is a prayer, isn't it? And this is a prayer unlike any other prayer that's ever been prayed. Because David, the man after God's own heart, King David, we don't know what he said on his deathbed, but we know what he said during his life. Quite often in the Psalms, he would say in different ways and in different manners, he would say, Lord, bring your wrath down upon these people. Elijah would have called down fire, wouldn't he? That's kind of the way Elijah operated. Uh, Elisha might have called up a bear to eat all of them right there on the, on the hill of Calvary. But Jesus says, forgive. That's a prayer of agony. Jesus prays that while he's being crucified. It's not after the fact. It's not after he's not hurting. It's not after he's feeling better. At the very beginning, the pain is still sharp. The pain is still fresh from where they nailed the spikes. He said, Father, forgive him. It was a prayer of affection. He Jesus prays this prayer from a position of sonship, doesn't he? He says, Father, I'm your son. Father, forgive him. Jesus wasn't a son by adoption, was he? Jesus was the only begotten son of Jesus Christ. He was a son by affiliation. He was the only one that is truly God's son in a strict sense. He was the only begotten son. And you know, Jesus could have asked for anything. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus could have said, Lord, send 10,000 angels. There's a song about that, 10,000 angels. Lord, send a legion of angels with flaming swords and take your vengeance on these people that are killing your son. He could have said, Lord, do you remember what it was like in the wilderness when Korah rebelled against you? Open a hole in the earth and swallow all these people up. Jesus could have gone all raiders of the lost ark and called down fire from heaven to burn up his accusers and his murderers. Instead, Jesus asked for the forgiveness of humanity. It was a prayer of absolution. Jesus didn't say, Father, get them. Jesus didn't say, Father, you remember what they've done. Jesus didn't say, Father, put this on their account. He said, Father, 
forgive. And you know, when Jesus asked the Father to forgive, he knows exactly how God forgives. We humans, we talk about forgetting, forgiving and forgetting. We're not so good at that, are we? We will forgive, and sometimes we forgive because God tells us to. We don't really want to, but we know we're supposed to, so we do. But we put it in our memory bank. And heaven forbid that person do anything to us way down the line, because way down the line, if they mess up again, we go into our memory files and we said, Aha, I knew you weren't serious back there a long time ago when you asked forgiveness. Y'all, when God forgives, God forgets. Scripture says he will remember our sins no more. He takes our sins, he casts them as far as the east is to the west. That means they're gone forever. Father, forgive. And it's a prayer of abundance. He says, Father, forgive them. Notice that they didn't initiate this prayer. They didn't ask forgiveness. Jesus initiates it. Usually when we forgive, it's because someone's asked us to. Isn't that right? Someone comes to us and says, I know I've wronged you. I know I've hurt you. I know I did something that hurt your feelings. Please forgive me. These murderers don't have any intention of asking forgiveness. Jesus says, forgive them. He initiates it. And Jesus also isn't specific in his prayer for forgiveness. Notice he didn't say, forgive Pilate, forgive the soldiers, forgive the centurion, forget all those disciples of mine that, that left me and deserted me. Jesus asked the Father to forgive them. And I want to make a point this morning. Did you know that them includes us? That them includes me. That them includes you. We can crawl into that pronoun, as one commentator wrote that I read this week. That them is for, aren't you thankful Jesus didn't specify that forgiveness just to one or two people? Jesus says, Father, forgive them. That's us, too. I'm thankful for that. Then we look down at verse 43. That's not right. Hang on. We're going to the thief on the cross is where we're going. What did you say? 39. Okay, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I was just totally looking up. I was right. I was Right, I didn't know I was right. So y'all, y'all disregard that. It is Luke uh, twenty-three, verse forty-three. But we're going to go back to verse thirty-nine for context. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, "If you are the Christ, save yourself and us." But the other answering rebuked him, saying, "Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation?" And we indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then verse 42. Then he, that's one of the thieves, said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, when we look at this, Jesus, or Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. The rest of the apostles forsook Jesus. They, along with the rest of the nation of Israel, they expected a Messiah who was going to free them from Rome, that was going to free them from Roman oppression. He was going to be their king and going to make Judah great again. Uh, their idea of a good campaign slogan for Messiah would be make Israel great again, because that's what they thought Jesus was going to do. Perhaps at this moment in time, the person who most recognized and who put the pieces together more than anybody else concerning who Jesus was and what he came to do was this thief. This thief, this evildoer, recognized that Jesus was going to be king and set up his kingdom. He doesn't say, Jesus saved me. Do you notice that? The other criminal was mocking him, laughing, and says, if you're the king, save yourselves and save us. This other thief very simply said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, I'm not sure that this man understood this kingdom's coming quickly. He just understands this. And I guess he's seen the way Jesus died. He saw the way instead of cursing and moaning and uh, swearing and uh, telling his accusers and his murderers, I'm going to get you, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Something in the way Jesus died struck a chord in the heart of this thief. And he realized he put the pieces together, probably through the help of the Holy Spirit, to exactly who Jesus was. And as we look at this, we could preach a whole sermon on the thief of the cross. Don't worry, I'm not going to. But one of the things I thought about, do you ever wish that you could pull back the curtain in order to get a glimpse of what is waiting for us on the other side? What does heaven look like? What happens right after we die? And, and I think that's the reason why books like Five Minutes in Heaven and, or these books where people claim to have had a near-death experience or have experienced death and supposedly came back. I'm not sure the validity of those, but that's, that's why they intrigue us. We want to know because we've never met anybody that's been there done that, have we? So when we pull back the curtain here, when the thief asked that Jesus would remember him, when he came into his kingdom, Jesus pulls back the curtain and he allows us to see beyond death. We find out beyond death there is consciousness. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say you're going to sleep for 3,000 years. He says this very day, today you'll be with me in paradise. We won't read it, but Luke 16, 29 through 23 the story of the rich man and Lazarus it said the rich man that Lazarus died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man died and was in torment. When we die, the moment we step from this life into eternity into the next dimension if we will, we're conscious. We're aware of what's around us. We are aware of what's going on. What happens when we die? We don't sleep. There's an eternal part of us that's going to live on, either in heaven or in hell. So there's consciousness. Also on the other side, there's personality. Jesus doesn't say, well, Jesus says today, 
you will be with me. He doesn't say you'll be somebody else. He doesn't say you're going to start a different life. Jesus says today you will be with me. When we die, whatever's left of us, at least those of us who are saved, we're going to be able to recognize one another. The rich man recognized Lazarus, remember? In Luke 16, he says, have Lazarus take his finger and dip it in some water and bring me a drink. So there's personality, there's consciousness. But beyond death, there's also a place. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And there's a little difference in exactly what paradise is, but, but to sum it up for easy understanding, paradise is heaven. Paradise is with God. When we die, we, go be, we get to go be with Jesus. Beyond death, there's consciousness today. There's personality. There's a place in paradise. And also in death, there's a person. Today you will be with me. Jesus is there. And you know, I don't know what is in heaven. I don't know what's waiting for us when we get there. But you know what I do know? That's a comfort to me. Jesus is there. And I don't care what kind of house I have. I don't care what job God has for me when I, I get to the kingdom. My job may be weed eating the grass. I don't know what I you know, I don't care. You know the only thing I care? My Jesus is there. And that's where I want to go. Today you will be with me in paradise. And when we read the rest of the story, we know that Jesus died. And we know that figuratively his blood is taken and put on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat of God, and he is the perfect sacrifice to take care of all sin, past, present, and future. And Jesus goes to paradise, and you know what one of the first things that Jesus does when he gets to paradise is? He welcomes this thief. You know, it would be one thing to shake hands with Abraham and to shake hands with Peter or, or to shake hands with the, the great saints of the past, David and Samson and Moses. But one of the first things Jesus does is shake hands and welcome this thief into paradise. And let me tell you, if there's hope for that thief, there's hope for us as well. So that's Jesus' second saying. The third saying Jesus makes from the cross is found in the book of John, chapter 19. John, chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own house. These next two phrases, I think better than the rest of them, remind us that not only is Jesus God, Jesus is also human. And the next two statements that are made, that are made remind us of the humanity of Jesus. If we could put that in our words, 
Jesus is on his cross and he looks out. And he says, Mom, you need to go with John so he can take care of you. And he looks at John and says, John, take care of my mama. You know, I suppose that one of the hardest things to face in death is what's going to become of our loved ones who are left behind. Have you thought about that? And I know you have because as I get older, I think about that as well. So we think about what, what's going to happen with our loved ones. You know what this Jesus is doing here? Jesus is setting his affairs in order. He's, he, he knows he he's apparently has been responsible for his mother all of his life. And now he knows he's not going to be with her. So he says, John, take care of my mama. Mom, now you, you need to go with him now. It's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. John will take care of you. The lesson we learned from Jesus is Jesus set his affairs in order before he died. Maybe we should too, amen? Not just our physical affairs, but our spiritual affairs. But then Jesus says in John 19, the same chapter, John 19 and verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he says, I thirst. I'm thirsty. Did you know hunger and thirst are purely human feelings and their purely human uh, cravings. I think these two phrases, take care of my mom and, and I'm thirsty, help us to remember that yes, Jesus is fully God, but Jesus is also fully human. And he says, take care of my mom. And he says, I'm thirsty. And now as we turn to Matthew 27, the scene shifts a little bit. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus has been on the cross since about nine o'clock in the morning, that Friday morning. It's now noon. That's the sixth hour of the day. And from noon till three o'clock in the afternoon, a supernatural darkness comes over the land. I wonder what these people that were sitting at the foot of the cross thought when it got dark. You know, it's one thing to get dark at 10 o'clock at night. It's another thing altogether to get dark at noon. And this wasn't just an eclipse. Some people have tried to say, oh, they had an eclipse. It stayed dark three hours. And the idea of this darkness is a supernatural darkness. Why is it getting dark? Because the wrath of God is going to be poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. 
And about three o'clock in the afternoon, the ninth hour, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice something that's very important here. This is the only time in Scripture Jesus refers to God as God. Most generally, he calls him Father. You ever seen that? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Our Father who art in heaven, I and my Father are one. Jesus here, he doesn't say, Father, why have you forsaken me? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With this phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We get the answer to what was in the cup at Gethsemane. Remember when Jesus asked for God to not make him go through drink the cup that was there. I don't think Jesus was afraid to die. I think Jesus fully understood the sacrifice. It needed. He was God. Before the foundation of the world came, Jesus knew what his job was going to be. Here is what Jesus did not want to see happen. Understand that when it got dark all over the land, that the sin of all humankind, all the way back from Adam, in the garden. Up to that point, and every sin into the future, until the point when Jesus returns and we go into eternity, every sin, the price, God's wrath is being poured out on this sacrificial lamb, this perfect human <coughs> that Jesus is. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless, God-fearing life. And he was the sacrifice. Jesus literally, Scripture says, became sin. He took our sin. And for a moment in time, God had to look away from Jesus because God can't be in the presence of sin. For just a moment, for the first time and the only time in eternity, the eternal bond, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, has never been broken. For just a moment in time, Jesus understood he was still God's son and deity. But he understood as a human, God has turned his back on him because of his sin. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When I look at that, when I look that Jesus endured the cross, Jesus was made a curse for me and for you. Jesus felt the full flood of God's righteous wrath upon him for your sin and mine. And can I tell you something? If that doesn't make you whisper, praise God. I don't know what does. But then in John chapter 19, And verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Well, what is it that's finished? Jesus isn't talking about his life at this point. He knows he's going to live on. He knows he's got work to do after the resurrection. Jesus is referring to God's plan for redeeming humankind. During these six hours, 
prophecy has become history. Everything we read about in the Old Testament concerning Messiah is coming true. Way back in Genesis 3 and verse 15, after Adam and Eve had sinned and God spoke to the serpent and said, Serpent, you may bruise the heel of these humans. At some point in time, one of these humans is going to bruise your head, going to stomp on your head, going to break your head. That's what Jesus is accomplishing on Calvary. The redemption price has been paid. The day of atonement has finally arrived. And I can see Jesus saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he bows his head and he whispers, It's finished. Finally, in Luke chapter 23 and verse 46, Let's read 44 for context. That was about the sixth hour. There was darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Just as Jesus trusted his Father in life, now Jesus is trusting his father in death. Notice he's going back to saying, Father, in your hands I commit. He doesn't say God. He says, Father, in your hands I commit my spirit. Death doesn't separate us from God. Do we understand that? Death takes us home. Death isn't the end, y'all. Death is the beginning. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Take care of my mom. I'm thirsty. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is finished. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Y'all, when we read scripture, we understand that Jesus showed us how to live, didn't he? How we ought to live, how we ought to act. You know what else Jesus shows us? He shows us how we ought to die. Jesus' entire life was spent in God's will. The earliest recorded words we have of Jesus speaking is when he was 12 years old in the temple. And he had gotten separated from his parents and he his parents found him in the temple teaching the scribes and the rabbis and the priests. And Mary says, Son, what in the world are you doing? You've worried your father to death. The first recorded words we have of Jesus saying, Don't you know I must be about my father's business? I'm about doing my father's business. Jesus spent 33 years of his life doing the father's business. And he dies. And he says, Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit. Jesus was ready to die, are you?